Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge, and today I've got a show about questions and answers from you guys. So, I always get a lot of emails, and I, I don't always read them on the show. Every now and then I'll do a show inspired by an email I get, or by a comment on the Facebook page. Um, but I've been got, getting some really good questions lately, actually, so I thought I would uh, I would do some answers to these questions that I get on email. So, let's go for, uh, let's go for question one. Some of these questions are short answers, some of them are longer answers. But I feel like some of these you guys might also be wondering. Okay, so here's one. Just found your podcast. Really enjoyed listening to one yesterday. Uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> During the mastering EQ process, you isolated particular narrow bands using a plugin. What plugin was that? I haven't heard of that functionality before. Uh, that seems useful. Uh, cheers. Thanks for the show. So uh, what he's talking about is on the shows with uh, Mark Pierce's song, Gold in These Hills. And I was on the mastering portion. I was using an EQ that can solo out um, certain portions, certain narrow bands, and isolate only those bands that you're affecting. And that EQ was DMG Equality, which is my favorite EQ plugin of all time. It's like $150, and I swear it will replace basically any EQ plugin you own, mostly. Uh, some of the analog modeled plugins that do very specific curves um, that would be very difficult to recreate might be useful just for ease. Uh, you can recreate them in Equality. It might just take you longer to, to get those curves. But um, in general, Equality is the only EQ that I really use. Uh, I have no reason to really use any others in the mix or in mastering. It's, it's, a, it's amazing what it can do. Okay, uh, next question that I have is... I am going to be recording a band starting Monday, and the drummer is going to use my drum set. My question is, if I take a few hours this weekend to set up the mics in the right placements to try to save time next week, will that be for nothing? The kit will remain the same. However, I am one of the loudest drummers I know, and I don't know exactly how in comparison this drummer will be. If he plays with a different velocity, will that change the tone, sound, or other elements of the recording? Thanks in advance for your insight, and I would like, if you would like to use this question on the podcast, you have my blessing. Well, here I am, using it on the podcast. Um, so basically, and, you know, I've already responded to these questions via email, but, you know, I thought that um, it might be helpful to say, basically, you know, intrinsic to that question is the word, like, the right positions. And that's the thing that really sparked my interest when I saw this question, because there really are truly no right positions for microphones. It's all subjective. However, the big question was, if you set up mics on a drum kit or on a guitar amp or on anything beforehand, is that for nothing? Does it all really not, I mean, does it all, should it all be found on the day of recording? That's a great question, because if you set up the drum mics, the drummer sure appreciates it, and the band does, because you spent time off the clock setting up, and setting up drums takes a long time. So, you know, they're like, oh, wow, you just saved us, you know, two hours, and you did it more just for ease, just to keep the session going, but, you know, you really did save them money. But the question is, is it for nothing? And what he means by that is, is it a waste? Is it something that's not even going to sound good? Is it something that I'm just wasting my time doing? Because when it comes in, it's not even going to sound like I thought it did. And that's a great question. And my answer to that is, I, my approach, I, I always debate this question because sometimes, you know, a band says, okay, we sound like this. This is kind of the sound we're going for. Here's some demos. And you can kind of, from experience, you can kind of be like, okay, I think this is going to be roughly the setup that they'll want. But there's two problems. One, 
every drummer hits differently and that totally affects you know the sound of the kit and the sound of really everything but the other thing is that every drummer you know will will move the drums just a little bit they'll move the hi-hat higher or the snare a little higher or they'll they'll tilt the toms a little more or they'll make them a little flatter uh they'll move the cymbals a little bit and so it can be really annoying when you have mics all around they feel like they can't move the kit and so after years of debating this uh my solution is get what you think you might use for the drummer's sound. If, if it's two mics, if it's 20 mics, and put them on stands, make a list, you know, write it out of where you think they should go, potential polar patterns, etc. Put them on stands and put them in the room, um, as many as you can. And that way he can freely move around and you've already got the mics on stands. It's a very quick setup. It still saves you a good hour from doing that because you still have, you know, thought it out a little bit. The good thing about that too is if they come in and they say, you know what, okay, so we really just want more of a minimal sound than the typical, like let's say it was a rock band and typically with a lot of rock stuff you'll do, you know, like um, two guitar, you know, like two overheads, sorry, two guitars, uh, two overheads, you know, two room mics, whatever, tons of room mics. And then, you know, you'll, uh, you'll add close mics on everything, snare top and bottom, sometimes hi-hat, etc. But if the band comes in and you've got all these mics in the room and they're like, you know what, we really want a minimal recording, like less, less perfect. You might be able to do, okay, well, let's just put up the overheads and a kick mic and maybe some room mics and see what that sounds like. Um, you can do stuff like that and the mic's already there. So you're not really wasting any time. Uh, you can adjust the setup very quickly depending on how they do it. Um, what if they take off a Tom? I mean, then you just wasted setting up a mic. If it's not set up yet, then all you really have to do is move the mics once the drummer's situated and they're, and they feel comfortable, which will help them play better. You know, they feel like they're at home, so to speak on the kit. Then, um, uh, you know, then you can move the mics around and put away the ones you don't need, uh, and run cables and you're good. Um, that's usually my natural response to that situation. And, uh, the only other thing I'd like to say about that is still the way that the drums sound in the room is the most important thing. So what you should do if they are using your kit or the house kit or whatever you want to call it. Um, you should spend ample amount of time beforehand making sure the drums are tuned. Uh, and if you don't know how to tune drums, learn. Because that, that right there is going to be way more important than what mics you use and where you put them. I mean, that's important too, but the sound of the drums in the room is, is of the utmost importance. So you should spend time tuning those up and getting them to sound as good as possible, then put the mics on stands, and then just see what happens. Great, great question. Um, thanks for that. Uh, there's another question similar about drums. So here uh, the question is, uh, just to cover your as a longtime musician who remembers the days when the only way we could record was at a studio and we never had enough money to do it right, today's in-the-box tools have really allowed me and my partners to explore the creative process much more. Here's my question. Like most artists, my band plays a variety of styles. My band's Squid, so... This guy's in a band called Squid. Uh, plays a variety of styles, but for the most part, you could call it rock pop. For, for a variety of reasons, we do not record live drums on our projects. These uh, reasons include my basement studio is too small. My drummer hits hard. We do not have a good method for isolating drums. My drummer does not tune his drums or change heads very often. 
we do not have enough mics and inputs. So instead, what we have been doing is recording with Roland V-drums and using them as MIDI triggers for kits we create in Battery or Addictive Drummer. We have trouble getting the velocities properly balanced across all the triggered instruments, uh, but overall we can edit these tracks and get them sounding pretty good. Since I rarely hear of anyone using this approach on your podcast, so far at least, it's making me think that we might be doing something very wrong. Please let me know what you think when you have a chance, and thanks for your terrific podcast. Thank you. So... Thank you for your ter- terrific question, because this is a very good question regarding my podcast, because I never talk about MIDI drums. Well, why is that? A, I have a nice drum room that is, you know, sounds great for drums. B, I don't like the sound of MIDI drums. Um, C, I've got a nice drum set, and I have session drummers that I call in on a lot of things, and uh, I'm very picky about, you know, cymbals and snares, and I've got a collection of snares and cymbals that we use and interchange. Um, D, I have enough mics and preamps and EQs and compressors to record them to sound really, really nice up front. And um, I don't even know what letter I'm on. Uh, additional point X, I just like the sound. I just like the sound of, uh, of real drums and real drummers and, and the whole combination of all the above factors. However, uh, MIDI drums are definitely necessary for studios that don't have the ability to do that or they have a room that sounds like crap and in some in some cases that's the only way you can really get a good drum sound is by doing midi drums which i totally understand that and it's a compromise you know you have to compromise some of the human quality um for for some of the tone quality and overall the tone can sound actually much better than you can get in a small room um but you do sacrifice a little bit of the uh, but of the, the the tonal and like human elements um, that you can get from you know uh, ghost notes etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, however, uh, what's more common that I see in guys that have limited setups is uh, guys that do sample replacing, not just recording on an, like an electric drum set or something or with triggers, but they do sound replacing. So they spend the most money they can on a set of overheads, basically. They try to get those as good as possible. They really try to get the symbols captured really nicely in those. And they will put cheapo mics, you know, SM57s or, or even cheaper, just whatever, really, close, close, close on the drums to act as triggers, essentially. And then they will record those sounds and replace the close mics with samples using a slate trigger or a drumagog or something like that. So they have these great overhead sounds and potentially even real room sounds, which is ideal, you know, to have up a room mic or two. And then, um, it, I mean, they're not great, but they're better than fake cymbals or fake, you know what I mean? I mean, fake cymbals just sound terrible. Um, recording real cymbals is a great way to make things sound human because you play the hi-hat and the cymbals a lot and it just feels like fake symbols and you know sampled symbols just never sound real they just sound weird especially like hi-hat it's like impossible to get hi-hat to to sound human um with samples um it's such a delicate and expressive symbol uh well pair of symbols that really changes all the time as you play it and the tiny little bits that you can open and close it i mean you, you just cannot recreate that with samples so if you can get the real symbols in there 
um, and then just replace the close mics, generally that sounds a lot better than uh, just using all electric drums or trying to, you know, recreate the whole thing in a, in a drum program later. And it, and it just takes less time because the drummer can play it and you just sample replace what you need. Obviously, you should try to get the drums sounding as good as possible on the way in. So still try to tune them because there will be drums in the overheads, you know, so try to get them as good as possible. Um, and if you can't get them that good, uh, then I suggest, you know, putting, putting like, this sounds a little crazy, but you can put some towels or something over the drums, uh, you know, or, or just deaden them quite a bit to where you mainly hear just the, the tick, tick, tick of the stick hitting. Cause then that the sample replacing can, can be picked up by that. Um, it'll, it'll, the little transient will appear and, you know, you can, it won't sound good, um, but it will be quiet and the mic will still pick it up as a transient, which will allow it to replace it with a sample in one of those plugins. Um, but that way the drums are a little more removed from the overheads. Another good option is to move the overheads a little bit closer to the cymbals, um, but that can sometimes sound a little washy and, and kind of weird sometimes. So you gotta you got to experiment, but that's more common in the circles that I roll with, so tr- give that a try too. Okay, another great question. Okay, I've heard of you talking about treating your room and how important room treatment is. Where should I start? Should I just try treating the corners? Lots of people online say that is the most important place to treat first. Okay, so this is a great question. We've talked um, a lot about acoustic treatment, and I've mentioned it being you know so important. This is something that is really near and dear to me. I think it is the most unappreciated and ignored thing when it comes to being in a studio. The first thing I would like to say is, um, sometimes I get the question, you know, like, why do we use acoustic panels? I mean, you see pictures of big studios and they don't have like these acoustic panels on the wall. Like, are these really helping? Are they just like a waste of money? Blah, blah, blah. Like a lot of these commercial studios, you don't see like, you know, bass traps on the wall, etc. Um, that's more for like lower level studios and consumers and home studios. Well, let me first say that in a lot of big studios, not only are they designed from the ground up with dimensions that are appropriate for the rooms to offset some modal effects, making the rooms sound good completely empty, a lot of times what you see, especially in tracking rooms, is are, are, are false walls. So false meaning you might see a wall that looks like it's covered in sort of fabric or carpet or wood slats or something like that. And that doesn't mean that that's the face of the wall. Usually it means that there's, you know, a foot or more of acoustic treatment or insulation or et cetera, et cetera, behind that face. And the slats in front are done in a mathematical pattern. I won't get into it too much. But long story short, you can't go based on what you see because these rooms are usually much larger than they appear and they're treated all around the room to where it looks as though there's no treatment but there actually is is potentially feet of treatment feet not four inch base traps but feet of treatment it really depends on you know what type of room it is and the design and whatnot but you know a room that might appear to be 30 by 20 or 30 by 22 or whatever um, might actually be more like 34 by 25 and it's treated all the way around and so it appears to be smaller as far as where to start honestly if i just had to cut to the nitty-gritty i could get into some a lot of details 
I would go to GIK Acoustics and buy their tri-trap corner trap panels that fill the whole corner. I would get eight of them if, you, if you're in a rectangular or square room with four main corners. Floor to ceiling, I would get eight of them. And it's not going to be dirt cheap. They do amazing things. That will tighten up the low end. They look nice. They fill the whole corner. Um, they sort of disappear into the corner. They've got a lot of colors. This test data is effective, and I have some of them myself. And I can tell you from experience, they work great. And then from there, um, try to treat... It depends on what you're doing. If you're doing a control room, if you're doing a live room... Um, But honestly, either live room or control room could have those in it, and it's not going to hurt. Your your big priority is probably corners, and that's because it's where two barrier surfaces, sometimes three barrier surfaces, meet. And so sound will tend to build up in those spaces. So corner traps really, really help um, in those situations. So ideally, treat the corners particularly the floor-to-ceiling corners are really helpful in front of you and behind you. After that, I would really try to experiment with positioning of your desk and positioning of your speakers. There's a common recommendation that you see that, oh, you should be placed 38% from one of the walls, either the front wall or the back. That's really just a starting point. What I have found in my experience is that's a great spot for your head but I feel like I've done a lot of tests. I've done a lot of measurements. And it's never, I don't think I've ever really been in a room where 38% is exactly where you end up. So the idea is really some of these things you can't prove unless you just test it yourself. I mean, you can, I can, I can almost completely say with confidence that your speaker should be in an equilateral triangle with your head. So that means... The distance between a speaker and the point maybe just right behind your head, like a couple inches behind your head, that should be the same distance between tweeter to tweeter. And that should be the same distance from the other speaker to a couple inches behind your head. That is something I can pretty much say with total confidence. But where in the room completely varies all the time. You And it's a painful process. You really have to place your speakers in the right spot. You have to place your listening position. You have to run tests from listening position and and see what the frequency response is using a program like Fuzz Measure or Roomy Q Wizard. And you have to get a measurement mic and you then move the speakers, you know, six inches closer towards you. Again, following the equilateral triangle and then test it again and then move the speakers again, move the speakers again, move them all around. What I found was helpful for me is to get a rough idea I took one speaker and moved it around as many places. I mean, I probably tested 50 places for the speaker. And then once I found the most accurate there, I then, uh, and again, I started my listening position at 38%, the recommendation. So I put my microphone there in the center of the room, but 38% from the front wall. 38% of the length of the room. So, you know, if the room is 10 feet, 38% would be 3.8 feet. Now, hopefully your room is longer than 10 feet. So then you just have to play this game of moving a speaker, moving the mic a little bit, moving the speaker, moving the mic, and, and, and running multiple tests and doing averages and trying to get the flattest frequency response. Now, when I say flat, I don't necessarily mean like razor flat, like zero, you know, plus minus zero. I mean, flat as in, uh, generally speaking, at least this is, again, in my opinion, my experience, 
what sounds flat to our ears is sort of a slight boost in the low end, gradually dipping down to a slight dip in the top end. And you might not think that's true, but that's kind of, you know, put up a spectrum analyzer on a piece of music, uh, a contemporary song, and that is probably something like what it looks like. So, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking like 10 dB boost in the bass and 10 dB cut in the highs. I'm talking just a dB or two higher in the lows. Then, you know, imagine a straight line, you know, from 20 hertz over to 20,000 hertz, just a flat frequency response, and then just tilt it a little bit. So where the top end slightly decreases at the far end and the bottom end slightly increases at the other end. To me, that sounds the most natural and that's how I've tuned my room um, is finding the spot that looks the most like that and has the smallest variance, meaning the highest peak to the lowest dip is as small as possible. So all this goes to say a starting point for you would be treat the corners and then I would probably mess around as much as you can after treating the corners, uh, which will kind of knock down some of those big ones, um, those big problems. You'll definitely need something to your left and to your right to control some reflections and ideally something above you. And again, this is sort of at the place halfway between your speakers and your ears. That's kind of where the treatments should be um, over on your left, on your right and above you. And then you'll probably need something on your back wall, Um, ideally something pretty thick, six inches or more, I think would be great for the back wall, because I feel like that often has the long wall, I should say, you know, or technically it's the short wall, but that's another note I should say. You should probably sit facing the short wall, meaning the long wall runs to your left and your right. The short wall is in front of you. Generally speaking, that sounds much better. Um, if you have a sloped ceiling, sit at the low side and f- and your speakers point away towards the high side. Don't do it the other way. That would be a nightmare. So there's lots of things you can read online. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. Um, GIK Acoustics is a company I trust. I stand behind them. If you need help specifically with your room, I would contact them. They will do room evaluations and help you get the products you need. They're just it's a great company. I trust them fully. I, if I were to build, you know, a new studio from scratch for someone, that's the first, cause I've built a lot of my own treatments and got them from a lot of different places over the last, oh gosh, seven, eight years of having studios to myself. And, um, I've tried a lot of products and GIK to me is just the most effective for the money. There are some that work better. There are some that work not as well. Um, GIK, I know this is a commercial. I don't work for them. I don't get paid anything for saying this. This is just my honest opinion. They're really just the the best middle ground that has the best, you know, cost to value factor. So treat your corners, mess around with speaker placement as well as uh, listening placement. Um, be flexible with those things because they might not, you know, putting your speakers close to a wall might be uh, space effective, but it might not sound that great. And it might be very inaccurate compared to pulling your speakers out a foot or two or three feet or four feet. Um, It really just depends on your room. There's no exact estimation I can give you. I I have no way of doing that. Um, If you want facts, you really just have to measure. Great question. Uh, Thanks for asking. Another question from the Facebook page is, um, I would like to hear you talk about mixing with a sub and just... Uh, and without it messing up your perception of the low end, I mix on seven inch monitors. I just got a sub. I'm not even sure if I should use it 
or if it'll throw me off. Maybe there are other folks in my boat. Just an idea. Um, love the podcast. I learned so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so this is a great question about mixing with a sub. Is it important? Is it necessary? Should you mix with a sub at all? How to do it without screwing up your perception of the low end? Now, unfortunately, even though this is a great question, this might not be a great answer, but it's the truth. There is no formula that you can do for calculating whether or not a sub is worth it. There's no way to really tell where you should set your crossover or if you should use a crossover at all. There's really no formula for placement. The best thing you can do, honestly, this is the this is the cheapest way to do it, is do some mixes with the sub, set it by ear, so pull up some material like some bands that you like and mixes that you admire, set the level of the sub with that, um, try it with a crossover, so let's say your monitors kind of fall off around 80 hertz, well, try setting the, uh, try setting the crossover there um, to where ideally... Ideally, the sub is made for those monitors and so that, you know, they work together. There are really kind of two sorts of theories on that. One is that you should use a crossover kind of where your monitors fall off. The other theory is that you shouldn't use a crossover whatsoever and just bring in your sub barely enough to help support the low end on your monitors. That's also a great theory, and I've experienced it firsthand both ways, and both work. The idea is basically, pull up some material that you think sounds amazing, I mean, mixes that you really admire, and listen to music and set the level of the sub and the position of the sub by ear to where it sounds the best. Now, you got to check for phase and make sure your sub is in phase and blah, 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 blah. But set the, you know, position the sub. I mean, low end is omnidirectional at that point, you know, below 200 hertz. So the positioning of the sub is a little easier than it may appear. It can be difficult. You can run into issues, but you can put a sub off to one side and it's going to be, you know, okay. So let's say you're sitting in your equilateral triangle with your speakers. Some people recommend you know, if you were to put a string, like just, you know, regular nylon string, um, you know, put it in your mouth, let's say, or tie it around your face and hold it to your tweeter, you know, you should be able to rotate it in a circle and the end should hit the other tweeter, theoretically, because you'd be in an equilateral triangle. The sub suppose, supposedly should also fit in that radius. So some guys will, you know, they take the string, they put it in their mouth or tie it to their head or whatever you want to do. There's a million ways that you can't just hold it also. Um, They'd rotate the string and, you know, somewhere in between their speakers on that line, they would put the sub. And obviously it'd be down on the floor. um, But that's the idea. Now that's one theory. But Play music you like, listen to it with the sub, do a couple of mixes, take it to the car, see if it helps you. If it doesn't help you and your mixes sound thin because you're using a sub, then don't use it. Um, Sometimes just a little bit of sub can help a lot. I mean, we're talking a sub that's just down in the 20, 30, 40, 50 hertz range just for that extra little bit of low end push. Um, can help immensely. Sometimes that works really well. Just be careful. Don't just crank up the sub and turn it where it sounds good. Turn it where you think it sounds 
you know, good but controlled. And that might be very low. That might be a very low volume. But again, it's all about experimentation here with the sub. Um, try it with the sub. Try it without the sub. Do a couple of mixes and see what happens. You know, do something that's got nice kick and bass information. Take it to the car. Take it to different systems and just see how it translates for you. I mean, that's really the best advice I can give when it comes to that stuff. Thanks for your question. Great question. Here's a question from a while back that I thought was really interesting. Uh, Hey there, quick question. I'm having a lot of trouble looking for bands to record. Even after just to see if it was my inexperience, I sent emails for one week saying I'd record six song EPs for free. If you can believe it, I've gotten no responses. I've been going to shows and emailing, but nothing. To expand my search, I've tried looking for jobs at live venues here in Chicago, and no luck. Is there anything you can recommend that I do? Great, great question. Thank you so much for asking this. I'm so glad someone did because I've always wondered, you know, how many of you guys out there are trying to do this for a living or trying to do it full time or just trying to make anything at it? Well, it's it's hard out there, I gotta say. So... Again, a lot of these questions I've already answered, but I'm relaying them to you guys because I think they're really interesting. So, in my opinion, if all variables are equal, so price, quality, etc., people would choose to do business with their friends. And if all variables were unequal, people would still choose to do business with their friends. A practical example. Let's say some random guy comes up to your door and says, you need to try this new cleaning product. It can clean the bottom of your shoes so clean. Uh, you'll never slip. You'll never, you know, track dirt in the house. They'll, they'll protect your shoes from even gathering dirt. And you'd be like, what the heck is this? Why are you here? Get out of my house. But if your best friend comes to you and says, dude, you have to try this stuff. It cleans the bottom of your boots you know, or your shoes or whatever, and it it doesn't let dirt stick to it. You would be like, really? Like, you'd actually be interested in this meaningless product because your best friend said, it's amazing. Even if your best friend sold it to you for more than that guy was going to sell it to you for. So that's a really interesting philosophy, but it's really true. All of that goes to say is that One of the key elements of getting work is gaining trust with people. It's really off-putting to go up to a band and be like, hey, I record, so if you ever need an EP, let me know. They don't care about that. However, they will someday. The point is, you have to somehow figure out a way to market to these bands without seeming like you're trying to sell them on something because if you act like a salesman they're gonna they're gonna notice it people notice that stuff i mean musicians aren't necessarily the smartest in the bunch but they're not stupid they know when they're trying to be sold on something they've all been to guitar center and heard the reps saying hey man you should totally try out this crate it's awesome and then you know but i digress um I definitely do recommend that you try recording with some friends bands um but i don't recommend doing it for free because that also will devalue your work and your quality. I mean, if you went to a car dealership and you said, and, and they told you, you can get this car for $100, the first words out of your mouth would probably be something like, okay, what's wrong with it? Or what's the catch? Because there would have to be something wrong with it. I mean, y- you need to be able to be in a place where you're comfortable charging a certain price. And I know that's a very terrible general statement, but... You need to know where you stand in the market. If you really think your quality is good enough to charge, you know, X per song, 
that's competitive with others as around your area, then do it. But if you really feel like your quality, the quality you can provide is just mediocre or, you know, somewhere in the middle line, don't try to just make money at it and charge an arm and a leg. It's That's not how you build a reputation. You build a reputation by being honest with people and letting people trust you. So my advice might be start out by saying, I do demos for free or cheap. You know, you know, three song demos for 50 bucks. You know, they're not going to sound crazy amazing, but they're going to be able to get you shows and you can pass them out to your friends. Just quick thing. You know, it's basically a quick mix, a quick recording process. It's not going to be some crazy full production. But if you call it a demo, people will know if you call it an EP that sort of implies like, okay, that's a little, that's, you know, that's better quality, especially if you're saying, oh, I do full albums, professional quality, and it's not really professional quality. That's a good way to damage your reputation because people won't come back to you because if they're like, I'm expecting, you know, you told me, let's say you charge a hundred dollars to do a song and you say professional quality and people get it and they don't like it and they don't think it's professional quality, they won't come back. But if you charged a hundred bucks and you said, Hey, I do demos for $100. People come to you. What's what are they going to say if they don't like it? They're going to be like, "Oh, well it was just a demo." And again, that might sound bad cuz they might not come back to you either. But at least you can start your reputation by being honest. You need to be able to give value to your potential clients. I mean, if you can give a single statement that sums up why they should buy from you, why they should, you know, record with you, um, and, and it's honest, then you'll probably be more likely to get the sale than, you know, for example, most of us don't care about billboards, but we retain what we see on commercials or YouTube videos much easier. Why? Because they tell us why we need to buy it, why we can't live without it. You know, Apple, for example, their commercials for iPhones and whatnot, they don't just talk about the new iPhone. They don't just sit there and say, oh, it's got a new 10 megapixel camera and blah, blah, blah. They show people like having a good time and like with their family and everyone's happy and in love and they attach value to their product without even really telling you about the product. They don't make it like a car commercial that I mean, car commercials are the worst example of commercials because they just yell at you and tell you, look, here's a car. This is how much it costs. And that's it. Like they don't give value You'll notice that the expensive car commercials, you know, like the ones for actual car models, they're more like artsy and they have like a family in the car and they'll say something catchy like number one rated in safety to keep your family and your children safe. And, you know, don't you want the best safety for your children? They'll say things like that. They won't just say new Lexus, $20,000 and expect you to buy. I mean, that's <laughs> people are tired of that crap. So Point is, you could say something aligns, uh, you know, something along the lines of, you know, if you need to get local gigs, but you, but you don't have a demo, I'll record three songs for free. People will like that. They, they want to see that you care. Um, not that you're just bored and you want to make money and record people. This is, I mean, I, I could do a whole show about this. Um, I could do a whole show about getting work, and I probably should. Basically, the idea is... To get work, you have to be honest and you have to be realistic about what, how people will see you, how they will interpret you. You know, again, if, if you offer for free, you're more than likely going to get less work than if you do it for cheap. That's because there's no value attached to it. 
I mean, obviously no literal value, but there's no like emotional value. You know, if, like I said, if you go to a car dealership and they're like, Hey, I'll give you this car for free. You're going to be like, what's the catch? I mean, recording an album can cost as much as a car. I'm just going to say that it can. I mean, in a high priced studio situation, um, you know, it can cost as much as a car or more or much more. If you value it at zero dollars, then people are going to look at you like you're worth zero dollars. And of course, there's a catch to that. If you say, okay, ten thousand dollars to record one song, people are going to be like, um, (laughs) it better be freaking amazing. You better have a studio in the mountains with a, you know, a whole staff and blah, blah, blah and free lunch for, you know, three weeks. I mean, they're, they're going to want to feel like they're getting their money's worth. And you and I both know if you go to Walmart or if you go to the, you know, drugstore or anything and you look at something, any product, doesn't matter, toothpaste, and you see one that looks like bargain bin and it's like a dollar and you see another that's like two dollars and you see another that's five dollars, you're probably more likely to go with the two dollar one than the one dollar one because you're going to be like, well, I don't want the, this cheap crap. That's probably not very good, but I don't want the expensive one. So I might go somewhere in between. Which brings me to my final point about this. Um, it's, it's like in the psychology of business that if you give people levels of purchasing, they are more likely to purchase. That is like a proven fact. Meaning, businesses that have gold package, silver package, bronze package, things like that, they're more likely to sell than someone who just has one product. That's why companies like Apple have different models. They have the 8 gig and the 16 gig and the 32 gig. They're all basically the same thing with like a little bit of a price difference and a little bit less memory. They're more than likely going to sell one of them as opposed to none of them. Because if they had one model, some people it would be too expensive. Other people it would be too cheap. And they would like, I don't, I need more space than that. That's, you know, that's not enough space for me at all. So... If you offer levels, that helps also. So if you're like, hey, if you just need to do a demo, like for getting gigs or just putting it up, you know, on YouTube or whatever, just need to do something quick, that's this price. If you want something that's more like full production and you really want to work hard on it, take weeks to do it, you know, that's going to be this price. If you want something that's like quick, quick and dirty, almost like just writing demo, not even to sell, you know, you can come in and do it in an hour. I'll give you, you know, two hours to record it and whatever you get, you get. I mean, just rough examples. But if you give people options, level options, um, you know, they're probably more likely to buy at least one of them because they feel like they have a choice. Again, giving people this choice, giving people these reasons to buy, giving people these options is good. They like options. People like options. So these are just some things to think about. Um, hope this has helped you. I hope it has uh, given you some things to think about and I hope you get work, man. I really do. I, uh, I, I know you will if you stick with it. So be patient and it will come. Okay. So, uh, another question. Hey there, I'm a fan of the podcast. I have a project studio in NYC. I've been thinking a lot about certain subjects lately. I thought maybe you could do a podcast about them. Well, again, I've read this email and, uh, I think this is a great, these are all great questions. I can't necessarily do a podcast all about them, but I think I can address um, some of them here. And hopefully these will help other people. Uh, one of them is phase. How to tell if something out is, is out of phase, how to AB for phase, what you hear that tells you a source is out of phase. Okay, I'll stop right there, answer the rest of the question in a bit. Um, first of all, 
let's talk about two things first. You have phase and you have polarity. Um, if something is wired incorrectly, the polarity will be flipped, basically. And those are commonly confused. I mean, polarity is basically the wiring of a cable. I mean, that's a really simple, very simplified explanation. But essentially, if a cable is out of phase, that's one thing. Meaning that, you know, when you say out of phase, that even starts to get confusing. So I'm going to say polarity. If, if the polarity is flipped... That basically means that pin 2 and 3 of an XLR cable or TRS cable, something that's balanced, um, are flipped. They're not wired correctly. That will cause, essentially, the sine wave to be inverted. Now, when we talk about phase, we're more talking about phase cancellation. Um, When you combine microphones of, you know, that are two microphones on a source, two or more, you will get cancellations. You just will. It's almost impossible to not get cancellations. You'll get cancellations somewhere. The goal is to make sure that they sound as good as possible together. Like I might have said in the past, mo mics, mo problems. So if you have 20 mics, you're going to get a lot of cancellation. It's going to be really, really hard to get all those in phase, um, you know, or, 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 or working well with each other. If you have five mics on a drum kit, it's going to be much easier to get those all working together than 20. So the idea is basically to best check for phase, here's the simple answer. Um, let's say you've got overheads and snare drum and kick, okay? Um, I always start with a reference. So as long as your kick track is the correct, you know, the cables wired correctly and the kick track looks normal, you use that as a reference. And generally speaking, your kick your close kick mic and your close snare mic will be correct together. And generally, they don't have much cancellation because they're in such isolation of each other. So I use those as my reference, and I never flip them. Now, if you have kick inside and kick outside, you're going to have to work with that. But your kick inside and your snare top will almost always be correct. So what that means is, um, and I'm talking about drums, I'll talk about other stuff in a second. But um, what that means is I keep the kick and the snare. I, do not, I don't flip them. So I leave those as my reference. Then I check everything else to those. So let's say the snare. I'll take the snare, I'll solo up the snare mic, and I'll solo up the overheads. And I'll put them roughly about the same level, uh, make sure that, you know, that the peaks are hitting roughly the same level. And then I will flip the phase on the overheads and see if that helps. Now, what do I mean when I say helps? Generally speaking, things are going to be in phase uh, when there is more low end. What that means is that the waves are adding together, not subtracting, so that you're, you're getting a fuller sound. When they subtract, it'll sound hollow and kind of funky in the mid-range and the lows. If you hit the phase button and nothing seems to happen, you're either A, not listening close enough, and you just don't really know what you're listening for, or B, they're something like 90 degrees out of phase, which means no matter if you flip them uh, a thousand times, it's not gonna, you're not going to hear any difference, which means you need to move the mics or use a variable phase tool, uh, which they have in plugins, they have in hardware also, but ideally just move the mics. Um, so I do all my phase checking in mono. For me, that means using a, uh, on my monitor controller, I have a dangerous monitor ST. I just flip the mono button. You can also pan your master fader in, in your DAW to one side. That's a really easy way to do it. Um, you can also get a plug-in that will collapse your mix to mono. 
that's also a good way to do it. Um, you can also just, you know, even overheads, you know, if I have stereo overheads, I still check those in mono. I check them left and right with each other and I check the pair with the snare. Then once those are good, I check the snare with the room mics and I check the toms with the overheads and I check again with toms, your close mics are probably going to be correct. That's generally how I assume, you know, that those are correct. And there's usually quite a bit of isolation between the kick, snare, tom, and, you know, rack tom and floor tom mics. Those close mics are generally fairly isolated. You, If there's a lot of bleed on the toms, you know, you're probably going to end up cutting that out anyway. So you won't really have to worry about it too much um, being, you know, phasey with the snare. But you, it's it's worth checking still. Like I said, generally my kick and snare never get flipped. It's always everything else around them. The problem comes when, for example, your overheads and your snare work together, your rooms and snare work together, but your overheads and your rooms don't work together. That's when it starts getting tricky and when you have to make some compromises. It definitely does depend on the balance. It definitely depends on the way you kind of want it to sound in the end. But you will have to make some compromises. And after a good, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes of doing this, you, you'll you get to learn pretty quick. I mean, it doesn't take years and years to learn how to check for phase. I mean, really, just take a drum kit, and it's easiest to really learn with a drum kit. Check for the snare. Do it like I said. Listen for whichever way has the most low end and leave the polarity that way. I find this easier to do when the drummer's not playing, just because you can really focus on it and you can just repeat, you know, over and over and over. If they're trying, if you're trying to check phase while they're doing it, it's, it can get kind of difficult. So usually when I record drums, I'll check the phase as best I can while they're recording. Um, and then just to double check, I'll go back and listen to it again and double check the phase. And if I hear, oh, okay, the hi-hat is out of phase, I'll go and flip it on the preamp and then check it from there on out. It can be a little tricky to check for phase on something like a hi-hat when it's mostly high-frequency information, but just listen carefully. Listen for essentially whichever position sounds better, and usually that's the one that sounds fuller. Um, On other things, like recording acoustic guitar, uh, piano, you know, with multiple mics, it's all about the positioning. It's very difficult to just fix it later on those types of instruments. Um, if you're really concerned about phase and you want the most accurate phase correlation possible, you need to mic in coincident type um, arrays. So things like XY or Blumline or Midside. You need to work in those types of mic positionings for the proper phase alignment or correlation uh, between the two mics if you really are worried about it. That doesn't yield as wide of an image, but it is much more phase accurate and in my opinion, sometimes sounds just a lot more real. Because um, real sound in real life is not wide. Let's just get that clear. I mean, when you're sitting at a piano, it's not like, oh my gosh, the high notes are all the way over here. When you're listening, I mean, your eyes tell you, yeah, the high notes are over here. And your eyes tell you the low notes are over here. But if you really just listen to the sound, it doesn't sound like super stereo. And it's kind of distracting to be, you know, to mic the high end of the strings and the low end of the strings in a spaced pair and spread them really wide over the head over the headphones it just i don't know it doesn't sound right to me but that's my opinion um okay moving on another subject is gating gating to tape gating drums uh gating speech without uh hiss coming in and out okay so that's a simple one i never gate ever i i haven't used a gate and i don't even know how long to me a gate is Uh, kind of an old processor. I mean, you can use it live that you kind of have no choice live, but if you're in the studio, 
and you have control over the tracks later then you just edit it out. I mean, when the toms aren't playing, turn down that space, automate it down, or just cut it out where the toms aren't playing. Um, you can do individual fades for every single hit, and it's much easier than, you know... And it, I mean, well, I say much easier. In the end, it sounds much, much better than trying to do let a gate figure it out. And I mean, you'll spend 10, 15 minutes tweaking gates on toms. You could really have edited out all the tom space by then. It's not that hard. So I would do the same on vocals. Now, if the hiss is an, is really annoying on the vocals, I mean, I would re-record it. Honestly, if you can't do that, then, you know, I would try to use some sort of a noise reduction plug-in. Uh, Isotope RX is absolutely amazing. I don't know how they do half the stuff in that suite of plugins. Um, seriously, it's it's like voodoo. It's the best sort of noise reduction and audio restoration plugin suite I've ever used. I I did it I did some mixing on a live session and they needed me to edit some stuff and that thing saved my life. I mean, I I bought it specifically for that session and wow. I mean, it took down uh, some hum and hiss and noise problems and um again, if this was my recording, you try to solve that stuff before, you know, solve it so it doesn't happen again. Don't just fix it every time. That's annoying. But in a pinch, uh, Isotope RX is great for that. It can remove hiss without really affecting the audio too badly. Other than that, though, um, I just don't use gates um, unless I have to. I have used gates before in unique ways. I've used gates on uh, guitars uh, it's sort of triggered by other things. I've used them as an effect. I have used, I guess I have used gates on backing vocals before, but generally speaking, I'll just edit out the space. I mean, yeah, it takes a while, but I mean, I can do custom fades essentially for each individual line, fade it out where I need to and all that stuff. So I generally just edit. I wish I could be more help on gates, but, um, I will say my favorite gate is uh, the FabFilter Pro-G. I think that's the best sounding gate I've ever used. Um, but I, gosh, I haven't used it in a while. Um, but it is a great gate. It has a visual uh, display of what you're actually gating. Um, check it out. Another question is, let's see here. Uh, Sidechaining, gating snare, and how to avoid the hi-hat triggering the gate. Well, like I said, uh, in that FabFilter, you can do their sidechaining inside of that plugin, uh, and you can trigger the gate, you know, by any range of frequencies. You can do a look ahead. Um, I've never really, you know, to me, if there's that much hi-hat in the snare mic, you didn't place the snare mic correctly, or they played the hi-hat too loud, or they didn't play the snare loud enough, or you shouldn't worry about it. I mean, if that's the sound, then, you know, don't worry about it. But generally speaking, I work really hard to make sure that there's not a lot of hi-hat bleed in my uh, snare mic. And that means, you know, I'll face the butt of the mic towards the hi-hat. I'll make people raise their hi-hats a little bit higher, move them a little bit farther away. I mean, every inch can make a can make a difference when it comes to hi-hat bleed, moving the hi-hats farther away from the mic. Um, you know, you can tell them to hit the cymbals a little lighter. If they can't really do that any lighter, then just tell them to hit the snare louder. So that's really the only tips I've got for that. Uh, compressing overheads and room mics as well as drum bus uh, settings, what they can achieve. I would love to go into that. That would be a whole show. I will say this, however. I basically never compress overheads. I just don't really ever do it. If I do, it's like light limiting, you know, fast attack, couple dB, 
one or two, just tapping some of those high transients if it's uh, if it's kind of out of control. But generally speaking, I don't compress overheads at all. Um, room mics, I'll either leave wide open and I don't compress them, or I'll crush them. Not crush, but I'll compress them pretty good with a smart C2, pair of distressors. Um, there's a great plug-in uh, called, let's see, CMCL1 sort of this optical compressor thing you could use like the waves la3 i don't know i just experiment with it Uh, sometimes room mics i don't like to be compressed Uh, a lot of times for rock stuff i compress them quite a bit but honestly you can use anything usually almost always it's a fast release and it's either fast attack or slow attack depending on the sound you want if you want them a little snappier slow attack if you want a little faster fast you know or i should say if you want a little more clipped like distorted faster attack um, just experiment with it. Sometimes you can get away with compressing it a lot. Again, that's one of those things where it's all about the mic positioning. If you compress, if you plan on compressing them and the cymbals are too loud, it's just going to turn into pshh. So either have them play the cymbals quieter, change the position of the mics or don't compress it as much. Let's see here. Any other questions? Uh, drum bus. Yeah. Drum bus. Um, I love compressing the drum bus. I always do it, almost always. Will I also do parallel compression on rock stuff? I don't usually do it on jazz or country, sometimes country. It depends if it's more rock country, but I usually will do parallel compression on the drum bus. I like to do the drum bus pretty light, but uh, I still always do it. I mean, uh, I'll th- maybe three, four to one, uh, a couple dB, one or two dB, somewhere between one and 10 millisecond attack. I time the release to kind of the groove of the song and wherever it feels like it's kind of pumping right. It's not really even pumping, but, you know, you can feel it. And uh, the parallel bus is usually like kind of like the room mics, either fast attack or slow attack and usually a fast release. And compressing anywhere from 5 to 20 dB and then just barely blend it in, blend it into taste. Sometimes I don't send the overheads to that one. I just send kick, snare, and toms to that bus i don't send the actual cymbal mics especially if there's a lot of cymbal um i'll just send the close mics to that it's a little cleaner um that's really all i can say about that it does vary a lot so um but great questions thanks very much for asking okay here's a great uh, guitar related question that i swear to you plagued me for years um and it took me a long time to really figure out what this was and it's so simple it's criminal The question is, hey, love the show. I've had some trouble with my guitar sounding crackly, and I've tried everything. Can you give any advice to keep my guitar sound from sounding crackly? So what he's talking about, I assume, is the sound we know when you strum a chord, uh, particularly if you strum a heavy chord or you're playing with distortion, and it sounds kind kind of like frying bacon or something. There's really two things for this. So the first thing is, if the amp is making crackling noises with the guitar not even plugged in, that's something different. Most likely a tube, a resistor, a capacitor, something failing. Um, so you should have that checked out right away. Often uh, older amps, sometimes even newer amps, uh, resistors and capacitors can fail or get old or get too hot. And um, they will start to make funny noises. Tubes can go out. So you should get that checked out. Now, if it only happens when you play, uh, there's really only a couple things that it could be. So I'll go through them. First thing you should check is your guitar's volume pots. So 
move the, you know, turn the volume up and down and note and listen for any crackling. Same thing with the tone pots, all of it. Listen for any crackling there. If those are dirty and you're, they're starting to crackle, the sound can crackle even if the pot isn't moving. And that's because, you know, the guitar signal is still going through the pot even when it's all the way up. Um, you need to open up the guitar, spray a little contact cleaner into the pot. All the volume pots and tone pots have this little groove cut into right by the metal uh, where that's where it's soldered in. I'm sure you can find a picture online, but there's usually a little groove cut out, and you can spray contact cleaner into the groove, and it will be inside of the pot. And you wipe the pot back and forth. You know, minimum volume, maximum volume, minimum volume, maximum volume. You do that. You know. 20 times, 50 times until the crackling kind of goes away. Repeat that as many times as possible. Um, You should also try to wiggle around your guitar jack and see if uh, you're getting any crackling there, Uh, in which case you can uh, spray some contact cleaner in the jack. And again, when I say contact cleaner, I mean something like deoxit or electronics cleaner from Radio Shack. Um, You can spray some in the jack and then, you know, use a Q-tip or a rolled up piece of sandpaper, something fu- somewhat fine, like 600 or 1200 grit, and just sort of lightly, you know, try to rough around the inside to make sure that there's no corrosion. Um, you can also repeat this for any amp, pedal, etc. So you can spray deoxit into the jacks and um, make sure it's all off, by the way, just for safe, extra safety. Spray it onto pots inside of pedals, spray it into jacks, do the little sandpaper trick on the jacks to your pedals. Um, listen for scratchiness when turning pots of pedals. Uh, this is ex- especially prominent on volume pedals and wah pedals, it seems like. So, you know, that's kind of how you clean out a pot. You you go minimum volume, maximum volume. You keep, you know, turn, 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 turn. to so sort of clean out any grime that's inside of there. And contact cleaner helps with that also. Uh, it's not going to hurt it at all. Uh, it just evaporates too after enough time, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, it'll evaporate. Maybe even sometimes like immediately. Um, you can do that for anything, really, anything with pots. So amps, um, anything with switches, you can do it to the switches. And, you know, like a, the switch on a guitar, you know, click, 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 you know, click it back and forth, run some contact cleaner in there, click it back and forth. So you do that to basically all of your guitars, all of your amps. The input jack on your guitar, the input jack on your amp. Uh, you can do it on your patch bay. You can do it on your pedals. You can do it on, uh, you know, anything. The only thing I wouldn't really advise doing it on is like power. So not don't do it on the power jacks of your pedals. Um, you can, but I don't think that's where your crackling is coming from. Um, you can do it to the ends of your cables. So you know, take a clean cloth. Uh, you know, spray some on your cables. Wipe them off. Make sure all of your guitar cables are clean and your pedal cables are clean. You'd be surprised how those things can really build up dirt and grime, and they will not make a solid connection. Um, sometimes jacks uh, in, in amps and pedals and uh, guitars can also come loose. So check out how tight it's holding the cable. If you feel like you just like slide the cable in and it just kind of sits there, like it's not a really tight connection, that might be causing some problems too. So open it up. If you need to bend the jack uh, a little bit to kind of make sure, not the actual circle part, but the little arm that comes out and holds the jack. I know that's the technical term, um, but there's, you know, a little metal flange that sort of comes out and holds the guitar jack. If you need to bend that in a little bit to make it a little tighter, then do it. Um, you need a solid connection. Again, 
clean it with electronics cleaner. That's your best friend in this situation. Um, as far as the amp goes, another great thing that you can do is, so again, with the amp off and ideally unplug from the wall, um, and ideally when you haven't played it for a while, um, to let the voltages discharge, take out all the tubes, you know, one at a time, remember where they are. Ideally you should wear gloves for this too. You don't want any oil on, on the actual glass of the tubes. Spray some of the contact cleaner into the tube sockets and onto the tube pins and, you know, run the tubes in and out of the sockets a couple times. So take it out, some deoxid, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out to kind of clean out the jack uh, of the tube socket. Do that for all the tubes in the amp. You know, again, you can do that for the pots. Uh, if you are going to open up your amp, uh, don't touch anything inside. I mean it. Voltages within tube amps can kill you. So unless you know what you're doing, don't touch anything inside. Just open it up, open up the chassis, flip it around. You know, be real careful not to set it on something where the tubes are going to get crushed or something. Spray some deoxid in the jacks, you know, and then rotate the jacks, like I said, min to max. You can do that on the speaker jack in the back. There's, I, you think you're getting the drift here. Basically clean everywhere that comes in contact with the signal. So from the guitar to the cable, you've already got like four things you got to clean. The switch, the volume pot, the tone pot, the output jack, you know, and the cable tip. So you can clean all those things with contact cleaner, uh, wipe them down, wear gloves if possible, you know, latex gloves. You know, then clean, that goes into your pedal board. Okay, clean every pedal input, every pedal output, you know, wipe the knobs back and forth, you know, uh, the, from min to max on every pedal, um, maybe 20 times each. It takes a while, you know, it can take a couple hours to do this for your whole rig if you've got a big rig, but very worth it. And you'd be amazed how much that can cut down on crackle. Um, having a really pure distortion tone, I know that seems like an oxymoron, but is very important to me. I hate it when the signal is, you know, on the sustain of guitar notes. And it can build up very quickly. So if there's a t little tiny bit on the volume pot and a little tiny bit on the tone pot and a little tiny bit of corrosion on the jack, and then there's a little tiny bit on one of the tube sockets, I mean, it can add up to be like you strum a chord and it's like, and you have this sort of crackly sustain. Um, you don't want that at all. So do that to all of your guitars, all of your amps, all of your pedals, and you'd be amazed what it can do. Uh, and all, your, all of your cables also. Great, great question. Thank you so much for asking it. It's a real passion of mine, honestly, to, to diagnose guitar sounds. I hate buzz. I hate hum. I hate noise of any kind on guitar sounds. I like them to be like clean and and you know even with distortion i don't like high noise where the amps just sitting there like Shh, you know i hate that so i like low noise signals great great question thanks again for asking that uh last question is what's the deal with the book so i wrote a book called three-dimensional mixing and uh what this question means basically is uh, how come it's not on the Kindle store, the Amazon Kindle store? How, how come it's not on the uh, uh, Apple iBook store or whatever it's called, the I, iBook? I don't know. How come it's not, you know, in those digital formats? How come there's not a physical copy, blah, blah, blah. So I'll give you an update on the book. So the, a book is currently available in PDF form at threedimensionalmixing.com. All in text, no numbers, but threedimensionalmixing.com. You can buy the book in PDF. It's $25. 
It's a book. It took me a long time to write. It's 300 pages, and there's a, it's basically all about mixing. Um, as it stands right now, uh, I have received my first physical copy of the book, and I'm going through it and doing some edits and changes. And I've decided to just release the physical copy as the second edition. So I'm going to go through and make some changes and update it a little bit more and uh, improve some of the graphs that are in there. Um, and, uh, really not change any of the information, just add to it. Maybe word a couple of things a little more clear if that, if it, you know, is easier to understand a different way. Um, but for the most part, the book is going to be, you know, 99% the same. I might add a couple things in there here and there. Um, but the physical copy will come as soon as I can get around to doing that, which again, I do this podcast in my spare time. I do the book in my spare time. I work full-time as a recording engineer. I wish that I could do the podcast more often, but that's the update on the book. Uh, So um, the physical copy will be released as a second edition, three-dimensional mixing, edition two, second edition, whatever you want to call it. And I will try to get that done sometime this year. I know that's a terrible thing to say, like, oh, this year sometime. But like I said, I'm very busy. I appreciate all the patience with that. Uh, If you don't want to wait, go ahead and go over to threedimensionalmixing.com and buy the book for $25. Um, If you do want to wait, uh, then feel free. Um, The physical book is, uh, it's really cool to see it, to have it in my hands and realize, wow, that's, you know, this is the real deal. Another reason I got is, you know, to check the album artwork and and I say, look at me, album artwork, uh, the the cover artwork and, uh, and make sure that it looked good once printed and et cetera, and make sure the back looked good and, you know, just see if I needed to change anything, make sure all the pages, you know, are in the right spot and everything, uh, that the graphs and charts printed correctly, that nothing seemed to freak out in the printing process. And like I said, I got into it and I just realized, you know what, I, I would love to add something here. I'd love to add something here. Um, so I'm going to do this as a second edition. So um, now I have one question for you guys. This has been an, a full show of, of questions. Um, I asked this question on the Facebook, so I'll just read it verbatim. I'm looking for honest answers here. If I started a paid subscription service where people got weekly recording updates, tips and tricks, info, audio files for practice, videos, tutorials, free stuff, etc. that cost... I, on the question, I said $5 a month, but would you do it? I'm toying with the idea of creating a new website that's a little more of a dedicated thing as opposed to a recording lounge or an addition, um, but I don't want to do it if no one else wants to. You may be asking, why charge? Please don't. Recording lounge is free. Well, yes, but it's also in my spare time, and that usually means once a month. Um, this service would be paid, but you would get info more often, um, once a week, maybe more. Uh, worth it? Not worth it? Um, I want your honest opinion. So feel free to email me. Um, we, I had talked a little bit about this on the Facebook. We had had a conversation with some people and some people had said, you know, $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month is still reasonable. Um, you know, if it was every single week and you were getting good info, it would be worth it. But that's the thing. I've never done anything like that before. So I would love to hear about, you know, cost expectations, how much, you know, how much you guys would expect from something like that, you know, once a week, twice a week, every other day, you know, some things are just impossible for me to do. My idea was once a week updates, you know, maybe $15 a month. I think that's a fair compromise. But you guys tell me, 
if it's not worth it at all. If you if you honestly would not find yourself subscribing to it, I would like to hear that too. So feel free to email me, uh, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you think about that. I, I would be able to do more recording lounge if it was something that I could monetize, if it's something that I could actually, you know, set out a day of the week to do recording lounge stuff. But I'm working so much with the studio now and it pays the bills that that takes priority. And I basically do this on a day like today where it's raining so hard that the musicians did not want to drive uh, from out in their house in the country. That's basically a plan that might happen someday. It might not, though, but I need to know opinions about it. I need to know if it would work. I need to know if I could support it. And I need to even know what type of things you guys would want because I need to even know if that's something doable for me, if that's something I could feasibly do. You know, if you guys are wanting things like me to mix, do those, like, I know that everyone really loved the shows where I mixed uh, Mark Mark's song, Golden These Hills, you know, the Let's Mix and Master a Song shows. I know everyone liked those, but that's not something I can do every single week. That's not something I can do super often, because I need to get permission from artists, I need to get all these things, you know, and it would not be something I could do every week. So if that's something you're expecting every week, that I, I couldn't do that. But if you're, you know, if you would like basically podcasts, essentially a recording lounge podcast every single week um, delivered to you, plus videos, tutorials, tips and tricks, you know, personal messages, cool free stuff, um, things like that. If that's something you'd be interested in for $15 a month. And uh, someone asked this question, it would be extremely simple for me to set it up with PayPal where it would come out basically every month automatically and you wouldn't even have to you wouldn't have to worry about it it's just you'd set it up like a bill and i also thought about doing some deals where it'd be you know $15 a month or $100 a year or something like that where you'd actually get a pretty significant discount for signing up for a whole year so let me know your thoughts on that uh, again all of this i'm talking US dollars for what it's worth i know i've got listeners from all over so 15 US per month uh, let me know what you think about this. I'd love to hear from you. Keep your questions coming. Some of these questions were asked months ago, and this is a long overdue show I've been meaning to do. So I hope this has uh, given you guys some answers to some questions. Thanks for all who emailed, um, and I'll talk to you guys next time.